I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week on The Magnificast, we've got a cool special guest doing a cool special episode. Uh, this week is Chase Tibbs from the podcast Faith and Capital. You might have heard it. And if you haven't, you, you better. Chase, do you want to say hi? Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, thanks. thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Chase's podcast. I mean, I guess we'll we'll let you introduce it on your own terms in a minute. Uh, but if you haven't heard it, uh, it's a really really fun uh, conversation, uh, talking mostly about the Bible and some of the uh, the themes that you can get on the left and and through Marxism and all those kinds of things. The kind of stuff that people email us to do and uh, we don't. So stop emailing us and just go let Chase do his much better job at it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good uh, a good way to put it. Uh, we're bad at reading the Bible, but Chase is very good. Um, <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to get into uh, <laughs> we're going to get into some of some of the Bible reading. Chase is going to give us his good Bible tips. He's going to tell us about his life first. We're going to read Matthew twenty um, about the laborers in the vineyard. But before we do, now that I have all, of, I've got Dean here who is uh, very smart, and I've got Chase who is a Bible expert. Oh, and I'm going to ask them a really tough and important spiritual question, and uh, uh, from Reddit.com/slash/slash/Christianity, and uh, I'm going to see how they answer it because we need to know. The people need to know. Uh, so Chase and Dean, are you ready for this big, important uh, theological issue? We're ready. Super ready. Okay. Okay, here it goes. Um, this, this might be a little bit off the beaten track uh, as far as theology goes, but I think it'll be fine. So this post, uh, it was posted 10 hours ago. Uh, it has zero upvotes. Wow. So it's hot off the presses. Uh, and it is called Orbs with a Christian Flavor. Uh, and this is delicious, yeah, delicious, that delicious Christian flavor. Um, okay. So the post, uh, post goes like this. Has anyone seen orbs that emit a Christian energy? You can totally feel it. Sometimes if you look attentively, they'll have crosses in them moving around. Anyone else notice this when they see orbs? So here's the thing, guys. Uh, have you ever seen an orb and have you ever seen it emit Christian energy? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. It's a big question. It is a big one. Um, everyone wants to know about these orbs, these Christian orbs. Hmm. 
Uh, I mean, there are a lot of orbs in the world. Um, beach balls, those are orbs. I've never seen a beach ball and, uh, emit any Christian energy, though, I have to say. Um, other kinds of orbs. Uh, there's pearls. There's uh, some fruits. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Are I'm sorry. I think, I think you're going in the wrong uh, direction with this one. Orbs, uh, as in sort of the metaphysical uh, manifestation of ghosts. That's what's uh, going on. Yeah, yeah oh, right, those right, types right. of orbs. Yeah, how could I forget? I think the only thing that pops in my mind is uh, I just watched Brave, uh, that like kid show, a mm -hmm. kid movie a couple days ago with my partner and uh there's like these like floating orbs and you and the character like follows them and that's pretty uh and her mom ends up turning into a bear i don't know that's pretty much the most orb life i've seen lately see the problem with that though is that <laughs> that's sort of in a pre-christian uh scotland i think and True. those are definitely uh sort of demonic orbs those are the pagan orbs that you definitely don't want the ones that Terrible. turn your mind into a bear <laughs> <laughs> yeah bear orbs bear orbs are dangerous you don't want to get too close um yeah, you know, I have to admit, I've I've just not had a lot of contact with these orbs. Uh, I wish that I could say that I had, um, and doubly, I wish that I had contact with the Christian orb. What? But what would it be? What would it even mean? I don't know. I, I'm really trying to get in the head of this question asker. Like, okay, first of all, you see some orbs. That's the most normal thing in the yeah, world, I guess. They're everywhere. Uh, but secondly. Yeah, they're, they're everywhere, uh, if you're sensitive enough to them. But as you sort of try to discern the energy that's emitting from those orbs, uh, I guess if they have crosses in them, that makes them Christian orbs? Uh, I'm, I don't know. The, the whole analytic process here is very confusing I think it's a question about whether or not ghosts are angels is kind of what it comes down to. Um, but it's, uh, it's a real hard one. Someone else in the comments, they said, no, they're devil, they're demons. They're demons disguised as light, which is, I think they, I, that could be sort of the bear, the bear orb. But um, boy, there are a lot of posts, uh, a lot of comments on this post about the astral plane and, um, and lots of metaphysics. And I think it's great. Um, I'm really into this research. I hope that somebody can get to the bottom of this one um, because we all need to know. We need to know about these Christian orbs. Yeah, because hey. now, now I'm wondering uh, if, if it was a bear orb that Elijah and Elisha kind of called to maul those children. I, I can't remember now what Now we're talking. Was. Yeah, Maybe now we're getting bear somewhere. Yeah. Maybe it's just the bear orb uh, when those kids were uh, harassing that old man. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, when they were making fun of his orb-like bald head. <laughs> All right, well, uh, there are some questions we'll just never know the answer to, and uh, most of those questions have to do with orbs and the nature of them, uh, for sure. Uh, but let's figure out some answers we can know. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good one. Uh, good transition. Um, okay. <laughs> well, Chase, you're here. You have this cool podcast. Um, do you want to tell us about it? Uh, maybe you can give us like an elevator pitch for your podcast. Uh, tell us like what it's about. What's the goal for the podcast? Um, yeah, I don't know. What big aspirations do you have? Yeah, um, so I think one thing I'm, uh, I really want to do with Faith and Capital is simply just offer an alternative Christian perspective. Um, I'm trying to, to extend an invitation, I would say, to Christian communities and persons to see capitalism through a different lens, a lens other than one that divinizes and sacralizes and normalizes and defends capitalism. I, I think we have lots of Christianity out there that does that. So uh, I think on one hand, I just want to offer an alternative. But my um, this alternative is is explicitly, um, as you all have kind of 
as you all know, it is, it's an explicitly anti-capitalist uh, Christianity. I, I'm a socialist. I'm, a, I'm coming from a Marxist now, uh, Marxist perspective. And so for me, capitalism is problematic. And it's problematic on moral grounds, on ethical grounds. Um, and it leads to, it creates structural violence. And so for me as a Christian, I hate sin, right? I, I hate the violation and the degradation of of human dignity and personhood, um, uh, the the violation of relational well-being or the well-being of all creation. And that's what capitalism does. Capitalism violates and it distorts and it destroys all those things. So for me, coming from a Christian perspective, it needs to be abolished and it needs to be replaced. So yeah, I mean, I ground my anti-capitalist practice and ethic in my Christian faith. And, and I think that I, I want to invite others to do that. To, to engage in an uh, anti-capitalist practice and ethic from our Christian theological resources and our ethical convictions. Um, I don't think we should just like be there for our neighbor, you know, when our neighbor's dignity is continually uh, being destroyed and attacked. I think, uh, you know, I want to end and replace the structures and the systems um, and the values that cause the violation of our, relation, uh, of our neighbor's well-being. Um, you know, King, um, one of my favorite quotes of King is, he talks about when true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And I think that Marxist and socialist analysis of capitalism as a structure and as a system uh, can help us do that. So that's one thing. But in order to do that, I've, you know, in conversation with, with people who have never thought about capitalism before or perhaps have only seen it in a positive light, um, I think in order to do that, we need to create really accessible content to help people think about and understand capitalism, what it is, its values, its ways of achieving its goals, right? It's, it's the consequences that result from it. Um, because when I talk to people, I get the sense is like, why would we want an alternative to something that a, they can't even see it's just because it's been normalized or naturalized or they know is there, but they think it's like really beneficial and good for them, right? Because it's been divinized. So I want to, um, I, I want faith in capital to be in capital to be an accessible analysis of of, of capitalist theory in, in, in its systems. Um, and I think religious concepts and narratives and stories can help lots of folks actually come to an understanding of, of capitalism. Um, right now I'm doing a series called Ruth and the Hidden Labor of Social Reproduction. And, and as much as I want to uh, start with the part two, the let's talk about social reproduction. Let's talk about what capitalism does to reproductive work and to those who perform reproductive work. Um, before we get there, I want to start and say, hey, let's, let's talk about the story of Ruth. Let's look at her life and how can we approach this text? How can this text help us think about how capitalism imposes reproductive work on some people and not others? It devalues social reproduction and it, uh, yeah, I, I can't remember what the, the third thing I'm doing. But yeah, so <laughs> just creating accessible resources. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably what at least I think is the strongest uh, part of faith in capital is that um, 
you do a really good job of pulling people into the conversation by, I guess, uh, picking up on some some metaphors or commitments that they might already have, and then you know encouraging them to to push that further, um, think through that. Uh, you know, one probably one mistake that we make on the Magnificast a lot is assuming a, a little bit too much of our listeners. Sometimes, um, not that they're you know dumb or anything, because they're all very good and very smart. <laughs> but like, uh, not everybody, you know, has the time or the, the ability even to, to read all of like the first volume of, of capital or whatever. Yeah. And we're kind of not like patient enough, I guess, to, um, to find a biblical way into that or something. So yeah. Uh, could you say maybe a little bit more too about how you use the Bible to make that case? Um, especially cause like the Bible is written in a time, um, you know, before capitalism, uh, but nevertheless, you kind of pull out all these really interesting lessons uh, from those texts. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, like when I think about uh, what this library is that we call the Bible, it's an incredibly diverse um, collection of writings by a diversity and plurality of, of voices and perspectives. But it was primarily written by incredibly oppressed people. Um, in a context of imperial domination, exploitation, and expropriation. So uh, I, I think it's an excellent, I think it's a great resource to, on one hand, again, just like dialogue with different stories and texts to help us think about our own oppression, exploitation, and uh, uh, being dominated. And then on the other hand, because there's this deeper liberative aspect to it. Um, not, not, not everything is, is great, obviously. There's, there's tons of terrible violence uh, that is supported by the scriptures. But, but there is a liberative element to it, I believe. And um, I think that for me, I've experienced it, especially in these last couple of years, to push me beyond where I would have gone. Um, had I not had I not heard these words and heard this story in this light and, and taken it seriously. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, the Bible is a pretty powerful book. You're right. Um, well, kind of coming off of that, though, um, you know, so, so I grew up in the Protestant church. I'm evangelical. And the thing that evangelicals are all about is like, you know, relying on the Bible, sola scriptura for sure. Um, you know, to kind of taking the fundamentals from the Bible and, and elaborating on them. And the other thing, you know, I mean, really ingrained in evangelical culture is like this, um, you know, not only is it good to read the Bible, but it's sort of part of your moral formation. Like if you're not reading the Bible, you're not a good Christian. But mm. something I only learned like way later in my life, like probably when I actually went to college or something, that the Bible is like a really hard thing to read and understand and you know, get in a, in a way that is deep and like that might actually be, you know, what the authors intended or something. Mm. So, I mean, you know, it, it's a big collection of books. Like you said, it's a library that sp just spans millennia. Um, it's confusing. It can be super weird, right? Like bears attacking people. That's <laughs> pretty goofy. Um, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. People nailing foreskins to things like what in the hell is this thing about? Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, hard book to read and, um, people do it with a lot of understanding about its context and its tradition as well. So like as someone who reads the Bible professionally on a podcast, um, <laughs> and that has some kind of training in it, right? Like what kind of guidance might you give people, um, just like people who are just regular folks reading the Bible, I guess, what would you tell them? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I'm a professional, you know, I did go to seminary. I, I get that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think like there is for me, I guess, yeah, there is like this basic, um, 
there are a few uh, realities with the context going on. The um, you know Abraham Heschel in his book The Prophets he talks about how this particular area just got exchanged from empire to empire to empire, and we know that Galilee in particular, the place where some of the authors say that Jesus you know came from, Jesus the Galilean, was a place that was incredibly crushed militarily. So so these people, the community in which Jesus was formed and shaped by and uh, the ancestors of the community in which he lived in, they saw incredible forms of brutality and violence and, and land expropriation and displacement. And so um, I think understanding the very real agony and suffering in the context of that, um, we can we can start to dialogue. Okay, so what's, how about the context of the author and the, the, the story that's being shared? Um, and what do we hear the author saying? And how does that compare to, say, what the Roman elite or Herod or the religious elite would be saying? And that's kind of like, uh, that's, that's kind of like a basic thing that I do. It's really not complex at all. <laughs> or, yeah. Well, but maybe you could say like maybe a, a few more things, though, like, um, how would people kind of dig into that history? Like, where would they look if they wanted to know? Exegesis and, and hermeneutic analysis uh, written for people on, say, what was it like to be a woman in hmm. first century uh, Mesopotamia? Or what what were the, the economic relationships, right? Because, so um, Roman Montero has a great book called All Things in Common, and he talks about the difference between economic relationships and our tendency to impose modern enlightenment, uh, postmodern kind of ideals and assumptions about, about the economy and, and wages and economic kind of structures. So yeah, I think there's a lot of great uh, uh, analysis out, out there, but I think it's important to just ask good questions. Like, uh, especially I would say, Someone who grew up in a military and economic superpower of the world, I it I the first thing I don't think of, or at least growing up, I wasn't told to think of, hey, so what are the military, what's the military violence happening in this context? Or how are these people being massively exploited? What are the economic conditions? Um, especially like I would say as a person who was raised to think of, you know, I was told to think of myself as middle white or middle class, and I was told to think of myself as white, what are the social relations um, that are that are occurring there? If, and to to kind of, if you're looking for like a particular place, unfortunately, I, I can't recommend any particular stuff. But there's lots of great content. I think it's just about asking those questions about structural and material analysis. Well, they could definitely listen to your podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, this is a good, I think, chance for us to uh, move to demonstrate a little bit of this or um, to have you help us ask those kinds of questions about a certain text. So uh, the premise for this episode, we thought it would be great to think with Chase about a passage in the Bible and kind of you know get some insight on how you uh, approach these things in your own podcast. Uh, so one that we all decided together to do was the parable of the workers in the vineyard uh, in Matthew 20. 
So if you would be so kind, Chase, first of all, maybe to just read that chunk of text, that parable for us, um, and then we could kind of work together to pull some stuff out for it and, uh, yeah, um, maybe just think through uh, how to read the Bible as a good Marxist or something together. Cool, that's it. All right, so uh, this is the NRSV in Matthew 21 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay. Beginning with the last, and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have been born who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat but he replied to one of them friend i am doing you no wrong did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage take what belongs to you and go i choose to give to this last the same as i give to you am i not allowed to do what i choose with what belongs to me or are you envious because i am generous so, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Yeah, well, thanks for reading it, Chase. I mean, it's a really great passage to dig into because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Maybe we could start out kind of uh, asking ourselves how Christians have read it in the first place, and then we could do a little bit different analysis in a minute. Um, one way that at least I've seen in my own experience of Christians kind of sidestepping like the social or economic stuff here is to totally like analogize it or turn it into a, a metaphor for like sin and forgiveness. Mm. So, you know, somebody who like did a bunch of sinning, they get forgiven a lot more than somebody who does like a little sinning. And the question is like, well, you know, uh, who's getting more grace or whatever. And, and the, the landowner's response is to be like, you know, that's the wrong question. That's a bizarre thing to ask in the context of like sin and forgiveness. Um, but like that is not exactly what's going on here, it seems to me, uh, especially in the context of the rest of um, the book of Matthew. So I don't know any other ways that you guys have, have heard the parable interpreted or anything before we maybe suggest a different way of going about it. Yeah, I remember um, when I don't know when it was sometime in my weird Christian youth, though, there's definitely been conversations about this and like deathbed confessions and like uh, conversions. Like it doesn't matter, you know, how long you're a Christian, just that you're a Christian and that you pray the sinner's prayer sometime. You can do it anytime you want. And this is like, again, like sort of a analogized uh, to that idea, like to talking about salvation specifically, which is, I think, also a pretty silly way to read it um, rather than drawing out some of the other themes about like universality and equality and stuff. 
Yeah, I know. I, when you all told me uh, that you wanted to read through this text, I Googled it, and I just Googled some of the, there's lots of blogs you can read on this text. And one of them, it was interesting, yeah, the guy was like, this is, when I read this text, it, it makes me want to work really, really hard. He, he, he shared about how one time he was like out of work and that he was like, I'm going to go and get myself a job. And yeah, it was, it was really about meritocracy, hmm. uh, which, is, which is something that I actually read this text critiquing. But um, it really was about how uh, we need to go. The, the main thing is just we need to work hard. And that's kind of like a, it's a Christian ethic to labor as hard as you possibly can. That's so interesting. How how do you think this is about, or how would somebody read this as about meritocracy, do you think? Because, I don't know, to me it seems completely opposite. I, I guess, what, yeah. what about this do you think would make you think that working hard is, like, good? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, personally, I don't think that, uh, that that is what the text is, is really getting at. Yeah. But I think if I came to this text with the understanding that um, my, to be a Christian and, you know, this, this person was also, um, uh, I'm, I'm assuming he thinks of himself as a man. So to be a Christian man is to go, it's to sell your labor, or if you can get enough capital to, to buy other people's labor. It, 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 uh, so these are like Christian and capitalist values intertwined together. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you approach this text and you hear something about wages, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there is, it's just, it's pretty easy for someone to approach this text and say, ah, yeah, this text is definitely about getting out of bed and providing. Right. Yeah. Maybe, and, and then like uh, in uh, verse 11, right, when they're talking about they received the money and then they grumbled against the landowner or something, right? And it's about working hard and not grumbling or something. 100%. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's obedience about being a diligent worker and, and being gracious and, and actually admiring the landowner, the person who has all the power and the wealth <laughs> and respecting them. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, that is a, a good time, I think, for us to start thinking some other so ways. So those are all the wrong ways. <laughs> thinking about that's, this that's, the wrong, that's the bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the three bad ways. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Chase, you know, you were just saying before we before we had you read the parable, there's a lot of kind of critical questions you can ask to open up a text like this. Um, and maybe you could walk us through a few of those, you know, like uh, when you read a text like this, how do you, where do you start and what kinds of questions are you asking? And uh, yeah, maybe we could just start asking them. Together. Yeah. So um, recently I've been looking at power, just thinking about power structures and, and how power is distributed but, um, among relationships. Um, so I, so when I first read the first couple sentence or the first couple words, I didn't even get to the end of the sentence. I'll just do it again for the kingdom of heaven is like a land owner. And I was like, Ugh, that sounds terrible <laughs> because right. Cause to me, I'm like, okay, here's this inequality of power between the landlord, um, and the workers and uh, the tenants and these wage, uh, uh these wait, these day laborers. So this is definitely not a worker-owned, worker-directed co-op. And I think that's problematic because right, you have this uh, concentration of power and you definitely, you have, you have one person who has enough wealth to own a vineyard 
And then you have all these other people who are standing by the side of the road or probably at this particular place in the city begging for someone to pay them a value less than they actually produce, right? To be exploited. Um, so, so that's kind of like where I start is like, let's look at who has the power and who doesn't. Uh, well, <laughs> that's a really challenging question. Um, you know, what does it mean to think of the kingdom of God as a landowner, I guess? Uh, <laughs> I, I think that I like blaze right over that part because I just get to the end, right? Uh, the wash shall be first stuff. Uh, that's what I want. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to reconcile that with myself, to tell you the truth. Uh, it is a very weird thing to kind of um, put the kingdom of God in that position. Yeah, it, it's kind of weird. But on the other hand, um, you, you know, it's like that. I, there's a sense in which it's not super different than like some of the let auto see stuff, right? Where like God, God owns everything because God made it or whatever, right? So it's like it's con uh, conceiving of God as a landowner in that sense. But the language of landowner does feel pretty yucky. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. And, and I wouldn't say, you know, I, I'm sure like we, we've talked about this stuff before, but like there's a lot of terrible imagery and there's a lot of terrible uh, stuff that the Bible does encourage. And we have to understand that in its context. So, uh, you know, another example, like I'm thinking about some of the, the language in Hosea and Ezekiel, God is depicted as, uh, and this like totally ruins um, the hope that God is for this 21st century patriarchal uh, monogamous marriage. But like in Hosea and Ezekiel, God is in a polygamous uh, marriage, but is physically and sexually abusive to the two sisters that he is in relationship with. So there's a lot of like really bad imagery in the scriptures. And, and I think this is just one example where we would say, huh, Maybe we can think of better ways to talk about and think about God, not as a land a landowner. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. All yeah. that being said, though, I guess it is kind of difficult, too, because, you know, we are, I mean, just like you said earlier, like we're applying uh, a certain like type of lens and a certain way of understanding what landowner means coming mm. from, you know, the specific sort of capitalist uh, society as well. Um so we're imposing some of our own meaning, like we're reading it into this text too. And that's part of why it feels so weird to us. Um, and, you know, had we, we had the eyes and the sort of context um, of people in this like time period, we might think of this completely differently. Uh, so I don't know. It's a good example of that, I suppose, too. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Here's a, here's a communist galaxy brain take. So the, the analogy is that the kingdom of God is like a landowner, right? Um, so it's not necessarily like uh, God, God's self or something, um, but it's this weird, weird kingdom analogy. So what if uh, the kingdom of God is actually the dictatorship of the proletariat mm. and that's the true lander, landowner, the class <laughs> landowner? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, that's how I'm going to read it from now on. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, well, what if we think about it this way too? So... Um, okay, we're, we have all of these own, we have our own baggage as we're coming to the text and we're reading our own kind of thing into it. But um, I think that uh, Matthew 20 changes a little bit if we read the bit that comes right before it in Matthew 19. Um, so uh, if you don't have all of your Bible verses memorized exactly, memory, uh, <laughs> Matthew 19 is the, uh, the, the story of the rich young ruler in Jesus where he tells him, you know, if you want to be perfect like God, sell all your things. Um, so like it's coming, it's this story. It's like this parable coming right after the right after the story of uh, Jesus putting um, putting a rich man kind of in his place. 
reading it in that sense, though, it does kind of change the context a little bit, right? Where Jesus just like has rebuked someone who is rich and powerful. And now he's saying this other thing about people who um, think that like work, work is what's going to get you into like God's good graces or something. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that that's an important part of reading the Bible is if you take this piece and you kind of look at what has just come right before it, it might make some more sense in that larger context. Wow. Yeah, no, I, that's, that is potentially incredibly liberative, not only with the, the last verse of the, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about with the subversive, the last will be first and the first will be last, but you naming the, the text before this and then, um, Dean, you talking about the, the communist um, idea of possession and sharing, I do think that it does have this, um, to say for, for God, for, for all this to belong to God is to, we could also think of it as none of this belongs to us privately, um, something that we can kind of keep for ourselves, nor does this belong to the, the richest, wealthiest, uh, political, uh, Roman elite. Um, so there is this subversive, like, what does it mean to actually be in this, uh, Christ, this Jesus movement? Um, and it subverts how we think about uh, possession and sharing and tending to the needs uh, of others. This question of who belongs, right? Verse 14, I think, and verse 15. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It also reminds me a lot of um, a while back when we, um, well, right now we're doing this like reading group where we're reading communism in the Bible. Uh, but back when we did the episode about communism in the Bible and when we talked to the, about uh, Rosa Luxemburg too, there's this idea that like in Acts, the, the Church of Acts was a, a type of communism of consumption. And maybe we have some of that going on here too, or, or at least I kind of get like a, a little whiff, a little whiff of that in the sense that it's like, um, you know, like however much you work fine, but you're still getting the same amount as other people, right? It's like, you're, you're holding, you're holding what you receive in common. It's the same, it's equal no matter what. And, you know, whether or not you bring in a lot or you do a lot of work is kind of irrelevant. And maybe there's something like that going on here too. That's the other communist galaxy brain take. Yeah, for sure. So like, uh, we know that Mark was the first gospel. It was written mm -hmm. in, in around 70 AD, right after, the destruction of the temple. Um, and then about 10 years later, 10 to 15 years later, Matthew and Luke seem to come have seem to have come about at the same time. So if Luke was the author of Acts, which is kind of like a pretty common assumption, I think there's, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there's a really close connection between the Acts communitarianism and Matt, the, the Matthean, uh, uh, chapter, apparently chapter 19 and 20, uh, that talk about who possesses what and how will things be distributed among the community. That's, that's pretty powerful. Yeah, it is crazy to read uh, the Gospels as being the product of a community rather than, you know, the, the events that precede it or something like that. And I think that's something that like until I went to school, um, like a weird Christian school and took classes on the Bible had never occurred to me. Like, I think I just read the Christian scriptures, uh, you know, sequentially, I guess. Like, yeah, the Gospels happen and like that's all the stuff uh, that talks about Jesus, etc. And then like Acts happens and like that's kind of the early church. And then like all those letters are floating around after that. Um, but like the whole thing is a, a product of people who were living in the way that Luke describes, presumably um, in Acts, right? So it is crazy to like reread some of these parables as uh, ones that emerge from communities where people are already practicing a communism of consumption and letting that be a, a hermeneutic guide, I guess. Um, yeah, it's something I hadn't really thought to do till just right now. 
You're welcome. <laughs> um, well, uh, before we get to the the last Shelby first, I guess we're <laughs> we're keeping the last verse last. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe uh, Jace, you could help us do some more thinking too about like the social context in which this happens. You know, like why would something like this be potentially subversive or scandalous? Um, you know, on the one hand, you can see some of the scandal already of like people feel uh, entitled to a certain wage by virtue of doing X amount of labor. Um, and it makes sense, right? Like even even in a capitalist economy, like we would probably say that, right? Um, if somebody, if a worker had done X amount of work and the boss was like, nope, not going to pay you for all of that, we would mm. say that's bad. Um, but why why might it be specifically subversive in like first century Rome or something I um, I wish I knew more about the all, you know all the history and the context, but I think what I hear you talking about is uh, is there is this sense of meritocracy. I think we can definitely pick that up in the scriptures. Um, I'm trying to look at the verses here when the workers grumbled against the landowner, saying, "These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us." So um, I do think that um, what I hear you talking about is just the, the sense of meritocracy. Um, and, but, but I'm not for sure. I, I, unfortunately, I can't speak to what the, that particular context, how they dealt with meritocracy. Yeah, that's okay. Well, something, I mean, as you're kind of talking through that, something that occurred to me was, you know, like I, I said at the very beginning, like the sort of evangelical reading of this that I grew up with, you know, it, it's about, um, you know, you don't have to work, you don't have to work to kind of get salvation, right? That's maybe like an evangelical uh, mm. reading, you know, uh, salvation, like Jesus's salvation is for everybody. And all you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer. And like, that's it. And no amount of works are going to get you there or something, right? Everyone gets the same amount of grace, no matter what. Um and it's, I guess it kind of occurred to me that that's like such an interesting idea that uh, evangelical Christians are willing to believe that God gives, you know, God gives God's grace like freely mm. and kind of uh, indiscriminately to people uh, in sort of equal portions, which I mean, would be a lot, I suppose. Um, but like how we can't think of that, uh, we can't think about that in any other terms, like in terms of like uh, uh, sharing wealth or actually like giving each other uh, a certain type of grace or a certain type of mutual aid or whatever we might call it, right? We can think about it in this sort of cosmic uh, metaphysical sense, but there's no way that evangelicals can think of that in a economic sense. And I think that's kind of a weird thing. So I don't know. It's weird because like the metaphor here seems like, um, you know, like you have to you have to make it uh, an analogy or a metaphor to think about it in terms of like this like weird cosmic uh, metaphysic thing. But you can just read it straight as economics. And uh, but we choose not to do that so often. And I think that's kind of a weird thing. Yeah, I think that's a great example where, Dean, you mentioned earlier about the separation between, uh, oh, you were talking about, well, this is sin and it's not about economics, um, kind of building on what Matt's, uh, what Matt's talking about. But I think that's a very like post-enlightenment projection that we're doing on this community. We're mm. trying to like separate the material from the spiritual. Like, well, uh, because you're right, I, I grew up uh, in an evangelical uh, community as well. And sin is, when, when sin is often talked about, it's not, Oh, this is direct material degradation of human well-being and creation's livelihood. Um, but I think that 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 uh, division between the two, right, the material and the spiritual, 
is is a perhaps someone can make that a hermeneutic, like a hermeneutic, a hermeneutical move. But it's not. We can't. We definitely can't project that on this community and on this author right here. Yeah, that's good. Well, um, so one danger, I guess, of reading this parable, kind of even in the way that we're doing, I I think, is that uh, just like we can project capital stuff into it, we can project uh, communist stuff into it. Um, you know, like <laughs> taken at complete face value, uh, without the the presumption that the parable takes place in a communist society, it actually does describe kind of a situation of injustice, right? Like, um, like if a worker told me today that they went to work at somebody's farm and like they worked all day and then somebody else worked for just like the last hour and they all got paid the same, I'd be like, that's bad. Like you should create, you know, like a farmer's union and like you all need to go on strike till you all get your <laughs> yeah. fair share. Um, <laughs> so I guess there is kind of a danger in, in reading this economically because it would turn us accidentally into, you know, bad capitalists. Um, but at the same time, uh, one thing that I think we're really interested in on the Magnificast is how biblical stories also end up being pretexts for saying, like, really bizarre things, or they come to be used uh, in leftist movements in ways that, you know, were not predicted by whatever, the writer of Matthew or something. So uh, to come down to that last will be first uh, line, um, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that and how this, uh, this text has been appropriated uh, mm. in, in communist ways. So the one that always stands out to me in particular is the way that this line gets used by Franz Fanon in The Wretched of the Earth. Um, so The Wretched of the Earth is a really important book in decolonization uh, literature and uh, should be very important, I think, for Marxists, too. Um, but Fanon uh, writes this right in the beginning, like in the, in the first chapter. He says, Decolonization, therefore, implies the urgent need to thoroughly challenge the colonial situation. Its definition can, if we want to describe it accurately, be summed up in the well-known words, the last shall be first. Decolonization is verification of this. And then he goes on to underline the point, saying again, the colonized can see right away if decolonization is taking place or not. The minimum demand is that the last become the first. And, I mean, Fanon doesn't, you know, parenthetically say, like, Matthew 20, whatever. <laughs> but he's appealing to, a, um, you know, a readership that would be familiar with, with that text. Uh, and I think that's really fascinating, like, to see the way in which... Um, just a, a short line like that can come to have such a transformative meeting in a, a social context where, you know, the the last should become first means like putting the oppressed um, on the top, right? And the oppressors on the bottom in the way that even like Mary talks about in the Magnificat or something like that. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. You know, like what does it mean to read the Bible uh, not only for what it's trying to say, but also for like the kinds of interpretive possibilities that are made available by it, um, you know, on purpose or accidentally? Yeah. So um, when I hear the first will be last and the last will be first, I, I think a lot of sometimes there's a conversation that that can emerge that says, okay, um, is this, is it literal? And it can't be literal because that wouldn't be fair. And, and I would say that on one hand, I actually agree. I'm not interested in, as a Marxist and as a socialist, I'm not interested in helping incredibly impoverished people become wealthy employers or helping incredibly exploited people get, uh, have tons of, of, of property to rent out to people without land. So it's not necessarily, for me, like, I think people could take this and say, no, we want to replace the exploiters with the exploited and just kind of like flip it. But 
I think another way that we could hear this text and um, what I hear uh, a little bit of what um, the, the text you just read in The Wretched of the Earth is talking about is a subversive and a radical and a revolutionary um, approach where to say that the last will be first and the first will be last, it's not necessarily just like keeping the same order, but just like replacing, switching whoever gets to be in, in what um, top-down position. But I think for me, I want to end that top top-down hierarchical uh, positions and relationships of power. Does that speak to your question? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, it's like, it's a crazy thing because surely whoever wrote Matthew had no idea about, you know, uh, a future in which France would have colonized Algeria and then a guy like France Fanon would have like read this verse and said that's the minimal demand for decolonization or something. Uh, but nevertheless, mm. you know, that's the kind of thing that the text um, makes available, whether or not it's like hermeneutically true or false. Um, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I can only say that because I'm not like a biblical exegete, so I don't feel like I have anything at stake in the conversation. <laughs> but as a person who reads like a lot of Marxist, I'm always like, whoa, that's cool that the Bible ended up there in a weird way. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Chase, what you're saying sounds good, though. Like, um, you, you know, it's not about I, I like what you said, right? It's not about putting one class above the other and like creating a new hierarchy, but it's about erasing the hierarchy altogether. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that there is actually something going on here that might that might, you know, points in that direction. There's like there's like a type of universality in here, I guess, that that's what I find really appealing or that's what I find that it kind of works for for like a communist reading like. The last shall be first means that like justice is done to those who've been oppressed, but it doesn't mean like then the oppression of the people who were on top, right? It means like um, uh, a universality of um, like, I don't know, dignity or, or uh, something. But I, I guess that's how I read it. Um, Dean, what, do you think that that works with of the Earth too? Or do you think that we're doing something different? <laughs> well, I was going to say, actually, I, I think the maintaining the antagonism is kind of important in some ways. Um, like, all right, it, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't mean, you know, making the oppressor, uh, into the oppressed and then the oppressed into the oppressor. Like it's not, not that for sure. Um, but I think it does mean recognizing that like to make the, the last first also does mean to make the first last, right? Like, um, mm. in liberation theology, it's called in some ways like the preferential option for the poor, right? Um, or in Marxism, uh, it is the, the replacing of one class rule with rule by another class in the interest of, of overcoming those antagonisms down the line, for sure, hopefully, you know, abolishing the class distinction altogether. But sort of like, in the meantime, um, it also means kind of privileging, for sure, uh, the people who are on the bottom for a while, and, uh, and deprivileging the people who are on the top. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, it's weird to pick all that antagonism apart. But there's part of me that wants to hold on to it, I think. No, I mean, I know what you're saying, right? But like the, I guess, I guess the way I'm thinking about it is that the universality of um, people, at least in this, um, in this parable, it it is in a sense, like, you know, it is disadvantaging some people, right? It is keeping that antagonism alive. I guess universality sounds like all are equal, but in a sense, it is taking privilege away from some and giving it to the number. And I guess that is one of those like weird deconstructing points of universality where it flips into its opposite or something, but I don't know, pretty wild. (laughs) Yeah. Chase, what were you going to (laughs) say? No. Yeah. I think these are, I think this is a really interesting uh, part of the conversation because on one hand you could have like a liberal universality, right? Where everyone's just equal and um, all are welcome. You can put that on your door, uh, on your church door. 
But then there is a more radical revolutionary kind of a, uh, approach to the universalism that, uh, Dean, I think you mentioned, it's like, let's, let's spotlight and let's, um, let's focus on the places and the people who are most vulnerable and most disposed of and most destitute, um, by way. And that is how we achieve this, Matt, what well, you're talking about this equality and this uni universality for all of us. Uh, so for me, yeah, like when I think about the preferential, the, you know, the liberation theology, preferential option for the poor, that is how we achieve well-being for everyone. Um, it's, uh, uh, but of course, I think when, um, when some people hear preferential option for the poor, especially, I think the, the status quo wants us to hear, oh, that is anti anyone who's not labeled the poor or the, the oppressed, right? Uh, but, but for me, I think that we can say, no, the, to, to talk about the last being first and the first being last, that is a mode of, of ending these hierarchies and ending these inequalities and replacing it with a genuinely um, uh, more communal well-being for all. Yeah, I dig that. I mean, it also kind of uh, makes me think of something that Paulo Freire talks about in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where he says that uh, to stop the oppressor from being an oppressor is an act of love and to liberate the oppressed, mm. you know, is also an act of love. So there's this kind of driving um, underlying piece of it, uh, even though it might not look like love <laughs> to the oppressor. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, well, uh, as we're kind of coming up in like the last 10 minutes or so here, Chase, um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you think that biblical texts like this and, and many other ones, you know, like you've pointed out in your show, uh, can help Christians on the left also get a, maybe more in touch with their own faith, but B, um, find other ways of communicating, uh, the, the kinds of points that they're convinced by in political economy or something within a, a Christian community. Um, do you have any advice for folks trying to sort those two things out? That's just like a question that I think we get a lot in, in emails or on Twitter and that sort of thing. Um, and it would always be good to get some more perspectives on that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like on one hand, like what we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, there's, I think there's a larger movement that, um, that stuff like the Magnificast has been kind of inciting and agitating for, for a while now. And people all over the world that, uh, in Christianity, that's a more radical, a more revolutionary, a more liberative uh, practice and, and way of thinking about the world. And, and I think that the scriptural texts are just full of stuff that we can dialogue with. It, again, it doesn't mean that the Bible did a great job on everything. I, I don't know. It's just not even an interesting question. It's like, well, is the Bible right about everything or some stuff? And if it's not right about everything, then we just throw it out. I don't know. It's just not even interesting. It's not an interesting question to me, I guess. <laughs> But um, I do think there are some incredibly liberative and subversive um, uh, aspects of this library that we should dialogue with. And that for me, I have found and I've experienced personally to push me way beyond where I would have been had I not taken some of this text, some of these texts seriously. For example, um, Mark, I think it's like eight. Um, yeah, Mark eight. Uh, it's it's the it's the part where it's the classic Jesus rebukes Peter, and so Jesus is like, "Listen, the Son of Man is um, is going to be 
tortured, uh, is going to be rejected, is going to be killed and resurrected. But it's a very bleak and heavy moment for Jesus here. And, and Peter is like, no, let's, let's do something else. Let's try. Is there some other way? And to me, this is like the author articulating what it means to practice. And uh, these are the realities of, for those who pursue the way of the cross. Um, this, these are the realities. This is what's going to happen. This is what happened to Jesus. And this is what happens to those who are faithful to um, the way of the Jesus, the, the way of the cross as we um, understand it. So I think there's some incredibly, and that's hard. I mean, I grew up in western rural Pennsylvania. Um, I was a, a, a pastor's kid. Um, I'm racialized as white. I, I'm born in the in the U.S. in 21st century. Hearing stuff like like actual persecution and suffering and rejection and someone being slaughtered by the state that just doesn't resonate with the world and the experience that I've grown up with. Um, but so, so I think there are some really radical things that push me to say, you know what, Chase, this gospel or, or the gospel in the way of the Christ or the way of the cross can be really dangerous. And that's something that is pushing me um, to, to places I wouldn't have gone had I not uh, taken this text as seriously. I think. Cool. That's really good. Um, I really appreciate, you know, sharing all that with us. It's awesome. Thanks a lot, Chase. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us about the old Bible and uh, and, and uh, reading a weird thing and talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven and how it's like a landowner. But, <laughs> but also yes. maybe not. <laughs> I hope not. But this is uh, this is super fun. Thanks so much. I appreciate I appreciate the work you all do and inviting me on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Of course. Um, so we encourage people to go find Faith and Capital. There's a lot of good episodes and more to come. Uh, Chase has been doing a lot of really cool work there lately, and uh, it's a really good resource. And also, if you're hankering for all that good biblical content, uh, now you have a place to go, uh, and not us. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can also find a separate podcast we do there called The Damnificast about the TV show Damnation. Uh, it's a really wild show about uh, a Marxist pastor and some strikes in Iowa, all kinds of neat things going on there. Um, we've also got a reading group going on right now uh, for a couple more um, sessions anyway. It is about Jose Maria Miranda's book, communism in the bible so you can get in on that uh, at patreon as well um let's see what else do we have going on i think that's pretty much it uh our music in the podcast is by amoria armstrong and the outro is the illogical spoon see you next week i don't want to get up at church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind.